Uh, If you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to the book of Acts, and Acts chapter 9, we'll read it in a moment. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, the words will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me. Very warm welcome to you today, particularly if you walked in this building uh, for the first time. Maybe this is the first time you've ever been uh, into a a church congregation. Well, we're so glad that you've made it. We know that coming into a place like this can be a, with a room full of people that you don't know, can be a daunting experience. So we're really glad you've made it. We hope you feel at home with us. If you have any questions about uh, what happens here this morning, please feel free to come and ask us. We'd love to talk with you about that. As I said, we're in the book of Acts, uh, which the book of Acts tells this amazing story which takes place uh, over about 30 or so years uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, In chapter 2, you find the incredible story of Pentecost, which is obviously what today is, Pinksterdach, Pentecost Sunday, uh, where God sends his Holy Spirit upon his people, the church, and the transforming power of God begins to change them and sends them out into the world on his mission. Uh, And then we've been tracking through where the story goes from there. Uh, We've called this series, uh, The World Turned Upside Down, which is what happens when the Apostle Paul arrives in the city of Thessalonica. Uh, and starts preaching the gospel there. And they say to, uh, who are these people that have arrived and have turned the world upside down? And that's what happens when the gospel of Jesus Christ arrives in places. That's what happened with Paul. But we're going to focus in on a passage today where we get Paul's, in a sense, his kind of origin story, where it all began for the apostle Paul. Um, and I'm going to read the verses to you. And what you find is that he's known in this passage as Saul. He's known as Saul in the uh, Hebrew world when he's in Jerusalem. And as he begins to go out into the, the Gentile world, then that's when he becomes Paul. But let me read these verses to you, and then we will pray. This is from the start of Acts chapter 9. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise up, go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. 
But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this Pentecost day where we get to celebrate and remember your spirit poured out on us. And we thank you that the primary thing the Holy Spirit does in our lives is he comes and bears witness to our hearts of the wonder of Jesus Christ, the wonder of his mercy and grace, his everlasting love toward us. And this morning, we just want to come and feast on that. Just enjoy the riches of your love towards your people. Enjoy the wonder, the fullness of your grace and love that we find in Jesus Christ. And we pray, just as we look at your words together, the Holy Spirit, that we just ask right now that you would speak to each of our hearts. Open us to hear your word. Let the eyes of our hearts be enlightened this morning with your power again. Come shine your light into our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This story that we find here in the book of Acts is it's a striking story. Maybe you haven't heard of Saul or Paul, um, but he's probably one of the most influential people that, that ever lived. His influence even on this book, the Bible, he writes many letters which have become the sort of theological foundation of our faith, of what we believe about God. How he goes about mission and building the church is shaped even today. How churches are started and planted, how churches function all over the world. His influence on the whole of human history is vast. He has an incredible future from this moment in the story, but he also has this horrible past that, although, as I said, this is kind of his origin story of how he comes to know Jesus, he's already appeared a few times in this story. We can read about him in the end of Acts 7, where Stephen is stoned to death, and Saul is there watching from the sidelines. So for the start of chapter 8, where it talks about how he's violently persecuting the church, and then we find this story of his salvation, which perhaps one of the most remarkable things about this story is that it actually appears three times in the book of Acts. Three different times Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, tells this story. Once here in Acts 9, and then again in chapter 22 and chapter 26. And also later in the Bible, Paul tells the story himself in Galatians 1. And it's fairly rare in the Bible to have one story that's repeated so many times. That's quite unusual, particularly one story just about an individual to be repeated so many times. And for this man to have such influence on all of our human history, well, why, 
Why is that? Why does this story keep coming back to us? What's God trying to say to us by inserting this story so many times? And I think a clue is in how Paul himself describes what happens to him. He writes about it in the start of Galatians 1, which is a a letter he wrote. And he says this in verse 15. He's explaining the story of how he was zealously and violently persecuting the church. But then he says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. That's how he describes what's happened to him in this story. That God came to him and called him by his grace. And this idea of the grace of God is... It's central to this story of what happens to Saul, who becomes Paul as he moves out from Jerusalem. It's at the heart of this story. It's the heart of Paul's life, his message that he goes on to teach and preach wherever he goes. He's always coming back to the grace of God wherever he goes. It's at the very heart of what we would describe as the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is the grace of God. Right through the whole Bible, this is the central theme that this book keeps coming back to again and again. That of, first of all, the mercy of God, that we don't get what we deserve. That you read through your Old Testament, you'll find the people of God again and again, rejecting against God, being disobedient, going their own way, and God keeps coming to them, his faithfulness, his mercy again and again. They don't get what they deserve. That's the mercy of God. But in the grace of God, we also get what we don't deserve. We get the free gift of Jesus Christ. We get his lavish mercy, his grace, his Holy Spirit poured out on our lives. We get to receive and enjoy his love. That's right at the heart of this story. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, the grace of God. First of all, I want to talk about how the grace of God saves us into something, into his church, into his people. We see Saul here, he's been, he describes it in Galatians 1 himself. He was attempting to destroy the church. He was doing it violently. It says here, he's come to, he was heading to Damascus so he could ask permission from the high priest that he could drag men and women away, to pull them away from their homes, from their children, to take the, throw them into jail, perhaps to even see them murdered, to become martyrs for their faith. This is a violent, evil man. He's... In many ways, the way that Luke writes about him in this book, he's kind of building him up as this sort of Darth Vader picture, this kind of arch enemy of the church. And yet what we get in this story is we get Jesus' response to him. Sometimes you might wonder that. Perhaps you felt a persecution for being a Christian. People have mocked you, made fun of your faith. Perhaps you've been skipped over for promotion or rejected by some friends because you believe in Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus in a city like this, can, you can often find those struggles, those challenges will come up. And a question you might have is, well, what does Jesus think about that? Is he just ambivalent? Does he just sort of look on from afar? Is he interested at all? How does Jesus feel when the church is under threat, is under attack? There's parts of the world today where the church is being violently attacked. What does Jesus 
think about that? Is he just sitting on his throne somewhere, just disinterested or looking down on his people in a very distant way? No, we find out what he thinks here because he says this striking thing when this light shines on Saul and he hears this voice saying, Saul, Saul, which the way it repeats his name is the way how in the Old Testament when God calls people, when he calls Abraham, he says, Abraham, Abraham. When he comes to Moses at the burning bush, he says, Moses, Moses. He repeats his name because he's got something important to him to say. And this is the important thing. He says, why are you persecuting me? That's what Jesus says. Why are you persecuting me? Which is an unusual thing to say if you think about it. Because surely Jesus should have said, why are you persecuting my church, my people? Why are you persecuting them? But that's not how Jesus thinks about his church. He doesn't stand distantly from afar. He says, why are you persecuting me? And then Saul says to him, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says essentially the same thing again. He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He repeats it to him. It's, it's me that you're persecuting, says Jesus. It's not just my people over there. It's me. Jesus is very... He's very clear about that. See, Jesus, in a sense, he takes it personally. Jesus takes it personally. Whenever the church faces not just persecution, but threat, attack, disunity, or even just pain and heart and brokenness in the people of God, Jesus, he takes it personally. And why is that? Is it just, when Jesus says, you're persecuting me, is that just a statement of kind of solidarity? You know, we might see the, the war in Ukraine and feel such frustration with it and we want to stand with them in solidarity, but we, we can't be there. We can't physically go and be involved. We can help in some ways, but we can make a statement of solidarity. Or maybe when you see someone, I was looking out of our uh, 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 window the other day and I saw a child fall off their bike. And as a parent, when you see a kid fall off your bike, you just well up with empathy in your heart and you wanna go and help them and do something. Is Jesus just feeling like that? Is he just feeling a sense of empathy to his church? And both those things, solidarity, empathy, they're, they're wonderful things, they're important things, but the love of God is so much deeper and richer than that. Because Jesus takes this personally because of the incarnation, which is a, a word that theologians use, which means with the word incarnation, carne is in flesh, that God became flesh, that God became one of us. That's why he takes this personally, because Jesus stepped down to live amongst us that he came to dwell amongst his people, that God doesn't just live in heaven above, far away, but we believe in a God who stepped down to be amongst us, to share the pains that we struggle with, to walk through all the distresses and the joys and the ups and downs of life. He experienced it all. He lived as we did in human flesh as one of us. And when he saves us, the wonder of maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you think, what is it that I need to do? I, do I just join a club? Do I, do I sign a letter? How does that work? Well, to, 
become a follower of Jesus, sometimes we might talk about something which sounds very bizarre and crazy. We talk about the new birth, that you're born again, that somehow you, you get this brand new identity, that you go from being yourself, a sinner full of brokenness and failing, and then you're welcomed into the family of God and you stand in Christ not part of a club, not a member of something, but suddenly you're somehow in a way that's a mystery too deep for us to really understand. We're united with Christ. And when you're united with Christ, it's both a real thing, but it's a corporate thing. You're united into the body of Christ. That's how Paul later goes on to describe the church. One of the pictures he uses, the church is like a body arms and legs and fingers and toes that's what the church is where does Paul get that idea of what the church is from it's from Jesus himself who said why are you persecuting me because the church is my body it's part of who I am see the point I'm trying to make is that the church us here, this little community of believers and the little community that will gather in an hour or so time for our next service and the community of believers meeting and worshipping across this city, the community of believers all around the world today worshipping Jesus. It's the body of Christ. And the church, it, it matters to Jesus. He really loves his bride. He really loves his people. Because we often, we like to we like to split off the church and our salvation and make them, make them two separate things. I'm a Christian here, and sometimes I, I go to church. That's how we like to think about it. And we think, well, maybe, maybe I just won't go this week. Maybe I'll just have a season where I'm not part of the church. But in a sense, that's, that doesn't really work. To be a Christian, you're saved into something. You're saved into a people, the body of Christ, something that matters to Jesus. And when we begin to divide it out from our salvation, when we try and split, split off our identity from the people of God, we've, we've really misunderstood what's at the heart of the gospel, that we're united into him. And we can either end up disliking the church we just treat it as this evil institution or, or, or we treat it as just consumers and we come and go or perhaps the opposite problem is sometimes we can I can't quite think of the right word. We can, in a sense, almost over-like the church. That we become so passionate about our personal ch of liberty church. We become so sort of tribal about our, our part of Christianity is this bit. And we believe these things. And those people that believe that thing that's slightly different from us, they're bad. They're wrong. We won't sing their worship songs. We won't go to their conferences. We won't read their books. Because we only read our things. We only do our stuff. You can have these two, you can either t start to hate the church and dislike it and treat it with contempt, or you can become so passionate about your own church that you forget the wider body of Christ all around the world. I was talking just as we came in this morning to someone who's here today who was at a conference yesterday with 40,000 people worshiping Jesus here in the Netherlands. That's amazing. Our nation is famous, this city in particular, for being one of the most secular cities on the planet. It's, it's secular to be without God in a nation which is supposed to have turned its back on God. And yet people are gathering today 
in churches all across this city, all across this nation, celebrating Pentecost, following Jesus. People caught up with the love of the church, the bride of Christ. And when we as a people irk, ache and hurt and feel pain and loss and threat and attack, Jesus feels it. He takes it personally. We're saved into his church, into his body by the grace of God. And the grace of God, it's powerful to bring about change. That's what it does. The gospel of Jesus Christ has come to change, to intervene, to disrupt, to change history. That's the story of this book of Acts as we go through it. We find God again and again changing things. And the world around us can feel big and scary sometimes. So many things we can be fearful about, can worry about. But he's with us. And he's also, he's working out his plan. Because we've seen in this story, in the book of Acts, in a sense, the threat level has been increasing all the time. As this church has formed, the spirits come on them on Pentecost Sunday. They go out into the world. They start new churches. People are getting saved and added. And the religious authorities are scared. And men like Saul are attacking them and persecuting. And the threat level is up to kind of DEFCON urgent or whatever they call it. It's like going up all the time. And yet what happens is we get this sort of interlude in the story in the book of Acts where we talked a few weeks about, ago about Simon the magician who gets saved, Simon the amazing of the Ethiopian eunuch who's, who's a politician from, from Ethiopia he's in charge of the treasury he gets saved and then uh, in chapter 10 we'll hear of Cornelius who's a, a centurion, he's a military leader he gets saved and in the middle of those three is also Saul who gets saved. And in these like four little stories that Luke tells, these four individual salvation stories, these four people, I think Luke's trying to get us a message across to us that it's, in a sense it's four people from different spheres of society, four very influential people. People are flocking to Simon this magician because he's performing all these crazy things. He's famous, he's got renown, he's, a, he's an influencer in some respects. We have this Ethiopian politician who would have been one of the most powerful people in this country. We find Cornelius, this military leader. We find Saul, this religious persecutor, four powerful, influential people. And each one, God comes and just intervenes in their life. He just suddenly steps in. That's enough. Not this way anymore. We're going that way. And God changes history. That's what happens when the grace of God breaks into the world around us, even when it can feel uh, full of fear, worry and concern. How's the church going to flourish in a world like this? Where so many things feel like attacks against us, threats against us. How are we going to stand for what we believe? How is this going to work? Well, behind the scenes, he's at work. He's saving people. He's disrupting things with his glorious grace. And the grace of God isn't just changing things around us. It's come to change your life. That's what the grace of God does. 
See, one thing you can learn from this story of how God intervenes in Saul's life is that, in a sense, although you get this dramatic story of what happens, in a sense, not much changes for Saul. He carries on to Damascus, and then he goes back to Jerusalem, to the people that he was persecuting. He goes back. What, God, what the gospel doesn't do is it, it doesn't come to change our circumstances. It, it comes to change our hearts. That's its number one priority. That's the number one priority of God in your life. First of all, he wants to come to change your heart. He doesn't come and say to Paul, right, okay, enough of that. You're going to go and be a missionary to Mexico. Off you go. I mean, they didn't know Mexico existed at the time, so that would have been a bit of an odd thing to say. But the gospel comes and says, actually, you're... It's even he's sent back to the people he was with before. He doesn't suddenly find this new adventure that happens later in his story, but right now, it's like he's saved and turned around and sent back to the same people. And that's what God wants to do in your life. Sometimes we can come to him and say, and our prayers can be driven by a, a want, a desire for a change in our circumstances. I just want this to be fixed. God, if you could just make that happen. Just my marriage is just struggling. And, and there can be, the, the language of the world around us will be, well, just, just change the circumstances. If your marriage isn't working, just get a new one. Your job is just frustrating. If you don't like your co-workers, well, just go and get another one. All the time, we're, we're given solutions. We're told to just, if there's a problem, just change. Change your circumstances. Just fix it. Just move on. Just reject those people. Go and find some new people. Reject that situation. Find a new situation. But when the grace of God intervenes in your life, it often just leaves you right where you are but it will change you from the inside. It will actually, actually it'll give you everything you need for that situation. And sometimes as Christians, we can wrestle with that. Not only are wanting a change in our circumstances now, but when we look into our future, we think, well, God, what am I called to do? Where am I supposed to go? Who am I supposed to be? What's my identity? And the answer is normally that where God wants you to be is exactly where you are right now. You know, not always. Sometimes God does want to move you on, send you somewhere else. Sometimes you might be in a, in a toxic, dangerous situation, a dangerous relationship, and you, you need someone to just come and help you get out of it. But most of the time, he wants you exactly where you are. Well, who's God sent me to? It's your neighbors, your friends, your family. I, I want to be a leader. Who am I supposed to call? To, who am I supposed to lead? Well, start with yourself and the people around you. What, what's God called you to do? He's called you to be where you are. That's what happens with Saul. That's what happens with, with Ananias. Like, oh, this poor guy, he gets a really rough gig, you know. God comes to him and says, you've got to... You've got to go and find this guy. Have you, have you heard of him, Saul? Said, well, yeah, I have heard of him, actually. He's a bit of a troublemaker. This guy's dangerous. There's no way I'm going near him. It's funny that 
You see, the second time someone called Ananias has appeared in this story, there was another Ananias, you may remember, in chapter 5, who he's famous for being disobedient to God. Well, this Ananias, he's famous for completely opposite. He doesn't say, oh God, just change my circles. I just don't want this calling. I want another calling. God says, no, here, this guy, right now. And he humbly submits to God. The real man of faith. See, the grace of God comes to change our hearts before it changes our circumstances. It's effective, it's powerful to change. And wonderfully, the grace of God, it also comes, it comes to choose us. That's what God says to Ananias. He says, no, go, go find this Saul, because he's my chosen instrument. That's how, if you remember, how Paul had described his, his salvation in, in Galatians, in that verse we read. Let me just find it quickly again. Sorry, I lost my bookmark. Here we go. He says, when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. And then he says something similar in Ephesians 4, does Paul, where he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. See, what happens here is that this salvation story of Saul, Ananias said, go, he's my chosen instrument, chosen vessel, God's chosen man for this job. But God's also chose us. We're his chosen instruments, his chosen vessels, he chose us, as Paul says, before we were born, before even the foundation of the world. Some of you may remember a few months ago, we had a good friend of ours, Terry Virgo, speaking here, who leads the family of churches that we're part of. One of the things I've heard him say numerous times is that before God made Pluto, he chose you. It's true. That's what he was doing at creation. We read this creation story in Genesis of God making the world, and we think, oh, that's amazing. The most amazing thing is that whilst he was doing that, he was choosing us, picking us for his mission, for his plan, deciding he was going to pour out his love into our lives. He wanted to choose us. And his grace has chosen us despite us. God didn't choose us because he foreknew, well, they're going to be the good ones, so I'll pick them. Those guys, they're going to be great, so they're going to be on my team. That's not how the grace of God works. He chooses us despite us. You know, Saul is he's just the best example of this. He says later on in 1 Timothy that I was the worst of sinners, and he's not exaggerating. He really was. But despite all of Saul's failings, his murderous, horrific, violent failings. God chose him. And God chooses us. Despite the sin in our lives, the brokenness all the times, all the things we've done, which we 
we just so regret you know the pain that we carry the stains we feel on us God chose us last week I, I took a tour around the Verkoch Museum has anyone been there it's very much worth a visit and it tells the story of Van Gogh, you know, one of the most famous Dutchmen who's probably ever lived. But his painting career only lasted for 10 years. He actually wanted to be a pastor, believe it or not. And he discovered art and he started painting. And as you go around the museum, it tells the story of his life and how although his, his art career is progressing, he's becoming more and more proficient, more and more gifted in what he's done. His personal life is, is wilting. It's slowly just falling apart around him. It just begins to disintegrate until the end, you know, famously cuts off his ear. And he's in this men mental institute. Uh, and as you're going around the, the museum, they tell his story, and a lot of his stories from letters he wrote to his brother. And he wrote to uh, his brother Theo, he wrote one letter right near the end of his life where he just said, he said, I know I'm a broken vessel. You know, and I can't be put back together. Those are his words. I just, this is it now. You know, I've just, I've fallen this far. There's, there's nothing left for me. I'm just going to wither away. And he does. He kills himself. It's such a sad story. And you, you, it's, it's a bit like when you go to the Anne Frank Museum here. You walk into the last room and just, there's no more diary. It's just stopped. You walk through the Van Gogh Museum and there's, there's just no more paintings. This gifted, talented man, he just, he thought he didn't have anything else to offer. He just took his life. And yet, the grace of God could, it could come to rescue someone like him. It doesn't matter how much of a broken vessel you are. In the kingdom of God, you're his chosen vessel. His chosen instrument. His grace chooses us despite us. And his grace... I guess there's a similar point. He chooses what we wouldn't choose. Just in the same way that Ananias in chapter 9 is sort of an echo of Ananias in chapter 5. Saul here in the book of Acts, he's, uh, he's designed, he's named Saul in a sense of like a contrast to King Saul, who you may have heard of in the Old Testament. You can read his story in 1 Samuel. And King Saul was chosen by the people because the people of God said, we want a king like all these other nations have kings. We want, we want a ruler. Why can't we have one? And Saul is this impressive man. He looks like he knows what he's doing. So they choose him to be their king. And yet his story doesn't go well. His story also, he wilts and fades away and begins up becoming quite an evil man. And yet, this Saul here, he's the complete opposite. Although the people chose the Old Testament Saul because he looked impressive, this Saul here in Acts 9, he's not impressive. He's zealous, we can give him that, but not for the right things. The people of God at the time, this, this kind of early little beginning of a church, they would not have chosen Saul to be the guy who's going to be, become, the, in a sense, one of the heroes of this story. They wouldn't have chosen him. Peter, we'll have Peter. Or John, you know, we know those guys. Not him. He's a violent man. We won't have him. In this. That's who God chooses. And that's, maybe you think, well, you know, 
God wouldn't choose me, surely. <laughs> I'm, I'm so unlovable. What? There's all sorts of other people God could choose. But he has. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus. Well, I think perhaps the reason that you're here, maybe you're not even sure, maybe someone invited you, maybe you just wandered in. I think you're here because God's led you here today. Because he wants you to know exactly this, that he's calling you, choosing you to be part of his family, that even before the foundation of the world, he already had his heart set on you. Despite however unlovable you feel, he's called you to be part of his family. You see, in his grace, finally, it, it chooses us most wonderfully, as we've talked about already, into Christ. You get this weird phrase here where, where what happens to Paul is that he's without sight. And he didn't eat or drink for three days, which sounds familiar, doesn't it? Just like Jesus Christ himself for three days was in a tomb. Later on, Paul talks about how it was at noon that this light shone on him just as Jesus was crucified at noon. And Paul and Luke, they're not trying to say that Saul is this kind of new reincarnated Jesus. They're saying, no, he's his salvation in a sense is Christ-like because he's just like us that when we're saved, we're saved into Christ. He's called us into this Christ-likeness likeness in him. And we're saved into the life of Christ. It says here that he's going to go and he's going to suffer for his name. Sounds like a scary verse. But he's just living out the life of Christ. And with it, through it all, the Holy Spirit's going to be with him. I'm just going to read that, that verse again and then I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to share communion together. Actually, why don't you just stand to your feet? I'm just going to read what happened to Saul and then just ask the same for us. It says, Ananias, he goes to Saul, he enters his home, and he lays hands on him. And he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, I just want to pray for us right now. Lord, that we just want to confess before you that for those of us here who are believers, that we've, we, we want to follow you. We want to live our lives as acts of worship and devotion to you. But we know that we, we desperately need you. And on this Pentecost Sunday, we just want to ask right now that your Holy Spirit would fill us. That you know, you'd fill us again with your power. And that we would know the love of Jesus flooding into our hearts as the Holy Spirit sheds abroad into our hearts the love of Christ. For those who are here who don't know Jesus, I just pray that even, even right now, Holy Spirit, you would come, unlock their hearts, show them their need for you, and you would pour your love into them afresh. We thank you, Jesus, for this wonderful story of what happened to Saul, of how your grace saved him. And we just want to celebrate that it's your grace that saved us, that you chose us despite all our weaknesses, our failings, even though we wouldn't choose ourselves, you chose us. 
to be your beloved children, to know your grace and to receive your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. Amen.